Every so often, I'll go to our Facebook group or I'll ask around what kind of topics and guests you guys want to hear from. And there have been a lot of requests for sports marketing lately, uh, which is what we have in store for you today as we're speaking to our head of sport, Greg Roll. And for those of you who don't know, Sporf is our own sports publisher, which has over 15 million followers across various platforms. Now, Cal has actually worked very closely with Sporf in the past, as well as basically all of our sports clients. So you get not one, but two experts in today's episode, which seems only fair as I got to have all my fun in our conversation with Andrew Bolton the other week. Yeah, great chat with Greg. It flowed so well just for that kind of mutual love of sport. And I think that real shift of mentality and, and needs of the modern fan, it's not actually something that's talked about. We kind of just accept it. But how people consume so much content in sport and it's all so readily available all of the time. It's fascinating to hear Greg talk about that and he, and he made some great points. Uh, I think one interesting point that really stood out for me was how brands can cut through the noise at the busiest of times uh, in sport when something's happening and everyone's talking about it. He gave some great tips there. So... I think this one's going to be really, really helpful for those sports brands out there. Hi, Greg. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Yeah. Hey, how are you doing? Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm good. Thanks. How are you guys doing? Yeah, good. We've got a, an exciting episode today, haven't we? Because our listeners will be familiar with Sporf, obviously, uh, which is our own sports brand, but they haven't met you yet. And obviously a lot has changed since um, they first came on. So to kick things off, we've got a massive question as usual, and that is, what do modern sports fans expect in 2021? I think that's a great question. I think obviously everyone's different, but at the same time, I think all fans, and I don't think it's just is for sport, but certainly, you know, they want to connect with their heroes, the people that they really follow, like like they haven't been able to previously, like the access that they can get now through, you know, club social channels, as well as the athletes' own brands and channels is stronger than ever. And you just look at the way that, you know, some of these people are now really leveraging that, you know, the example that sticks to mind is Ben Foster, the Watford goalkeeper, and how he's launched a YouTube channel and grown to nearly a million subscribers in, you know, just under two years, I think, with his really unique content showing the life of a footballer like never before. And I think it's just that access that, that fans want and expect from, you know, players, clubs and publishers alike to, to really keep them up to speed and give them their news in an entertaining and informative way. Mm, no, definitely. And I guess, well, Sporf's whole thing is showing this sports content, but through the eyes of the fans. So I want to know from our like community, what trends have you seen in the community that weren't there this time last year? So for example, last time we got Sporf on, it was a couple of years ago now, but there was a massive focus on Instagram. And I'm just wondering, like, in terms of behavioral shifts, what have you guys seen recently? Well, I think the the clear and obvious one straight away is the rise of TikTok and how powerful that platform is now for all sporting brands and publishers alike. You know, just for an example, you look at the coverage around the Olympics and all these Olympians from all these different companies were launching their own TikTok pages and providing this incredible behind the scenes content from the Olympic Village. And, you know, for, for me as a sports fan, I'm sure a lot of others, that's always like the unobtainable goal of you never really get to see what's going on. In the athlete village, you hear stories, you hear rumours, but now you've got mm. um, these athletes creating their own content, jumping on TikTok native trends, but doing them in an environment that is so iconic. And, you know, because especially even more powerful is the fact that fans couldn't be out in Tokyo. So it's a really interesting way of them starting to build their own audience. And I think you're seeing that 
across social, not just TikTok, where there's a value, Instagram as well, YouTube, is that athletes now are looking to kind of future-proof their careers. So they know that they can build an audience when they're relevant or the spot that's on them, that they can then monetize at a later date. So for an Olympian who struggles to get budget together for their next Olympic cycle to compete for the next four years, they've now got a tangible asset in their social media following that they can take to brands to help fund their training and ensure that they can still you know, perform to the best of their capabilities. And again, the same with Ben Foster, who mm. is coming towards the end of his career. So is looking at what's next. And you know, some people would go down coaching some people get on punditry he's forged his really own really unique narrative by jumping into the social space collaborating with youtubers and other social media stars and seeing that that's a way that he can you know forge a new career outside of football so i think those are the key trends is seeing athletes now growing their audiences creating unique and bespoke content that they know is then going to set them up and create an engaged community for what's next Mm, I bet it's, you know, we talk about existing um, sports fans, but I bet it's a really effective way of attracting new fans as well. Mm. And I say that because you mentioned the Olympics and I'm not a massive sports buff, admittedly. I do I do quite enjoy the Olympics, but this year I got more into it than any other year before because I'd seen um, the athletes on TikTok and there was one of them who was like had a crush on another one of the athletes in the village and she kept updating people about it. And it just added another layer, I think, not to mention all the memes that were coming out. It, it made yeah. the whole thing feel a bit more accessible for me. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it just fuels that fandom because you're getting to know the person, not just them as a product or an athlete, let's say. And I think the way that these incredible athletes have been portrayed or been media trained is they're literally, you know, it's just their sport, that's it. But they have these stories to tell. They have these incredible personalities. And the rise of TikTok in the last year, especially the last two years, is giving them the platform to do that whilst they're still in a competition environment, which I think is really unique and been really, really interesting. They say, so definitely made people kind of it's fueled that fandom and made people get behind them further and i think as well they'll want to see what they do next now as well not just in terms of that three weeks of the summer every four years yeah and a big shout out to tom daly as well and he's crocheting during the olympics yeah, i uh, that was awesome i did enjoy following that one i was just interested to on the on the brand point of view there greg that you mentioned obviously you know a lot of athletes are wising uh, wising up to the possibilities of, of partnering with brands on social and building their own, you know, obviously the, their personal um, footprint on social to then take to brands. We actually spoke to Logitech a couple of weeks ago um, regarding this and, and, and about creators. And I think it applies here too, whereby audiences now see through ads that are so explicit. So they don't want to be sold to, you know, they don't want brands rammed down their throat all the time. There needs to be a balance here. And it brings me on to something actually that we executed with Sporf um, a couple of years ago for William Hill, whereby we had this stunt with Edin Hazard and it was the stunt. And then we had some branded curtains on the end of it, but the stunt was the main focus and William Hill was the kind of the facilitator for the stunt. And it worked so well, you know, 30 million views over 48 hours, I think it was, it was ridiculous. It definitely highlights the fact about branded entertainment and how important it is for brands in sports. So I just wanted to get your view on that. So the balance between branded entertainment rather than content that's covered in brand messaging, because in sports, obviously it's very entertainment led. We need that to take the focus, right? We don't want adverts that are just brand and then a little bit of sport on top. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think the key word that I always think of for this is authenticity. And the content has to be authentic first and foremost. And there should be a natural integration of the brand where you can. And I think that's a really good example with um, what William Hill did with with us as sport and Eden Hazard. 
But another example of what we've done recently as well is um, we've got an editorial format that we've done, you know, plenty of times. And Cal, I know you've been across it as well, called Back Yourself, where we create Jeopardy. Our host takes on an athlete or talent at a specific challenge with a forfeit at the end. Now, straight away, because they're backing themselves, it really aligns nicely to, to a betting brand or a gaming brand. So we've been able to do this with the likes of um, Call of Duty Mobile and also Party Poker more recently. Mm. And we've been able to create that really interesting content where the interview and the interaction between our host and the talent is at the forefront. But we're still also actually being able to show whether it's the gameplay or the actual product itself, but in a natural and authentic way, instead of not that this is brought to you by Party Poker or brought to you by Cod Mobile. They're actually playing the game. So it's just a natural fit and there's still interest in that, but it's not detracting from the interview. And also what that does is because they're playing a game, they're kind of guards down as well. So you get really interesting answers and, and conversation because they're completely, they're focused on the game. So they're not focused on giving that media trained answer given to seven or eight different media outlets in the past yeah. year. And and that and again, but it, it's the authenticity that, that speaks through is that it's the format first, what brand is relevant for that. And when we're thinking about, you know, whether it's editorial formats, just because we need to entertain our audience, that's first and foremost. And then and then we think and take to market, where does a brand fit and what is a relevant brand for that content strand? If we just have someone badge the content, it doesn't work because people see right through it. Oh, they paid for that, not interested. It doesn't stop the scroll. And that's what we're all trying to do in this space. Exactly. And I think, you know, if, if I see a player or whoever it may be, an athlete, you know, enjoying themselves on Call of Duty, surely as a, a human, you're more likely then to go and play Call of Duty because you've seen someone you like or uh, someone you idolise playing it and enjoying it rather than someone going, play Call of Duty now. You know, like I said, they don't want it rammed down their throats. And you've got the chance that you might be able to play with them as well because obviously they're all playing online. They're all games anyway. So imagine if you end up yeah. jumping into a game with Declan Rice. Incredible. What was the one that ended up in, um, in the national press? Because his penalty for losing on COD Mobile was to pretend that he was doing a backstroke on the pitch next time we scored. Yeah, so we had... Uh, Declan Rice taking on Mikhail Antonio at Call of Duty Mobile playing the game and like you said the forfeit was decided that when Antonio next scored he'd have to do the backstroke a celebration this was filmed back in October November last year and then Antonio got injured so we're like oh no he's going to forget we're going to lose the relevance <laughs> but then in January which funnily enough just as I joined as head of sport he goes and scores and hits national press not only that they ask he's asked in his interview what was with the celebration yeah. really interesting and i mean it's a pr person's dream because he literally just name dropped the entire campaign what he was doing why it got to mm. this point and that earned organic natural reach off the back of it is almost more valuable than the content itself because it's been done in a way that you've got that second bite and again we saw an uptick in views straight away from that because people saw the saw the interview saw the um celebration and thought oh where's that from why did he do that and they go and they find mm -hmm. you know the video on sport on instagram and the twitter and watch it or they might watch it again because they'll relive there's some really nice moments in that that piece anyway of you know the banter between both will brazier our host and declan Moss and michael antonio so yeah it was great and perfect example it's so natural as well isn't it like sometimes people listeners of this podcast will know very well i have a bit of an issue with the word authentic because it can be really vague um but to me if we're talking about authentic partnerships the way that he could then say to the press you know so offhand oh i just lost the game of cod mobile because i was playing with sport it's so natural and yeah it's not something that you've gone to them and given them a message and said please say this exactly it's, it's entertainment led and that 
has to be the way forward. You've got to entertain an audience and then fit yeah. the brand in there, like you said, Greg, where it where it works. Just staying on that topic of branded entertainment for a moment, I'd like to shift to kind of the current model of traditional media. So obviously we've covered social there um, and we don't often kind of go into television on this pod, but we've seen a lot of social being translated onto uh, traditional media such shows such as Saturday sh- you know, just Saturday Social. Wow, let's say that one again. <laughs> um, they've begun to pop up on, on Sky Sports, right? So we're seeing shows that are specifically designed to cover coverage on social, but on television. And also they're using sports hosts. So we see um, chunks. I think we saw Harry Panero brought in for transfer deadline day on Sky Sports News this year. That to me is fascinating how TV are now wising it up to what's happening on social and where the crowd and where the chat actually is. How does sports coverage now merge social media with traditional media? And then how can sports focused brands actually take that into account when speaking to fans? Yeah, I think um, it's a really good point. I think first and foremost, it's great to see... um, you know, these social media influencers getting that getting that opportunity. And I think where these broadcasters are seeing the opportunity is that they see the views and the numbers these guys are pulling on their own content. So mm. if they can bring their audience from social to that, and because some of these guys, you know, have such loyal fan bases, they will watch anything um, with them in it. So if you've got Chunks or Harry Panero saying, guys, tune in, I'm on Saturday Social, 12 o'clock today, you know that you're going to, if, it hits at the right time you're going to get a good chunk of their audience going over to watch that because they like them they want to hear from them they can't get enough of their content which is brilliant but i also think it's gone the other way as well where you're also seeing formats that started on tv that were successful like gillette soccer saturday and now you see what the true geordie's doing on his youtube channel with um the kickoff so it's exactly the same you're watching people watching football yet i think people now want to hear from influencers people that they have more of a direct relationship with on social than necessarily ex-pros who you know have been doing the same thing for years you're hearing the same stuff with them week in week out you've got different guests or you've got people that have a more affinity to a certain club a certain game it's just it's just a different way so it's really kind of gone two ways you've got social media stars going over to tv which a lot of for a lot of them i'm sure is their aim is they want to break into tv that's still kind of the ultimate goal mm-hmm. for a lot of people but then you've also you know the savvy um creators are seeing successful um tv formats that can be applied to social in a really natural and easy way and it's that's where it's that kind of twofold and i'm sorry i forgot the second part of your question no well staying on that first part i think it's really interesting that's a, it was a great answer in terms of um that kind of two-way relationship i'd never actually thought of it you know i've grown up watching gillette soccer saturday every saturday and tuning in and in theory you're watching people talk about football right and it doesn't seem strange because it's on the tv yeah i have never tuned into a uh, true geordie um show because in my mind i'm watching somebody watch sport and talk about sport that i can't see so it's strange that just because that's on social to me, it seems strange, but because it's on TV, that's what happens on TV. I, I find that relationship a bit, I don't know, just, yeah, just a bit, bit of a strange concept more than anything. But I think where it's really interesting and where it's relevant for brands is we all know, you know TV advertising, TV sponsorship is really, really expensive. And a lot mm. of it is kind of estimated reach what you're getting. You know, you're not going to get a hard defined number, whereas a brand that wants to sponsor that sort of format can see, you know, the views it's pulling in YouTube, the engagement, there are metrics there that are so much clear, more clear cut. 
that a brand can define the exposure that they're getting from their sponsorship and the return on their investment. And that's what I think is the key for that in terms of the move to social. And I would, like you said, like you, I was in the era growing up, Saturday, three o'clock, Sky Sports News on Jeff and the boys, Gillette Soccer Saturday. But at the mm-hmm. same time now, because the way that sports rights and football rights have changed and the ability to see goals more often, and also in the pandemic when nearly every game was on TV, Gillette Soccer Saturday yeah. for me has kind of waned a bit as well. And I'd be more inclined to pop onto YouTube or at least that as a second screen while I'm watching the game because there's more live football on than ever on TV now anyway. So do I need to be watching as a first screen someone watching football when I can watch the football, but as a second screen on my iPad or phone? And I know we're going to come on to talking about the second screen option um, content as well, where that's really got a bleed. And I think that's kind of why YouTube and the streaming side of things in this format is probably where it's going to go and where brands can actually see better returns moving forward. I want to come back to that sort of complementary content actually talking about second screening but I feel like um, as we're talking about what the modern sports fan wants and you know we've mentioned things like they're following the athletes they want to see influencers they want the news in real time and entertainment focused content. Just when you were speaking there Greg it's kind of apparent that things like rights and ad spend uh, almost dictating this shift as much as consumer behavior is but I wonder are older sports fans getting a little bit shafted here because they see a YouTuber come onto the show they've been watching for 20 years and they're thinking who is this and they're sort of maybe being dragged along on a ride that they don't want to be on but sports isn't just a young person's game is it it's like they're it's universal and there are fans of all ages so I guess from a brand perspective, are older sports fans a target for you guys or is it more focused towards young people and we just kind of expect older fans to stick with the traditional broadcasters? I think there is definitely a balance, but we need to understand, speaking for sport, we need to understand who our audience are first and foremost and ensure our our content caters to them but then also understand what audience do we want to target? And, you know, I think it's that balance of creating content that you can't please everyone, especially on Mm. social. You're always going to, you know, divide opinion and some people are going to like it, some people aren't. And I think it's important to understand that and not try and please anyone because then you create this really bland piece of content that isn't really doing anything and it's just there to try and please all. And I think there's definitely a space to target older fans. And I think older fans are now becoming more open to, consumer traditional media i don't think necessarily on social but i think the best examples that i've sort of found are the crossover is actually with the documentaries on the streaming services like netflix and uh, amazon prime so formula one's drive to survive for example you know f1 and motorsport and that's my original background has a traditionally older audience but a lot of them have been really engrossed and got to know the personalities behind the drivers and the teams with drive to survive and that's been massively successful globally which is why they rolled it out for, you know, a fourth or fifth season. I'm guilty there, Greg, massively. Absolutely yeah. sucked in by that one. I wasn't a big F1 fan beforehand, but now I'm, I'm loving every race. I was absolute genius yeah. in terms of marketing. And, and, and it's the same with what Amazon have done with All or Nothing. You know, they started doing that with the NFL teams in the US. They've brought that over to the UK. They've done it with rugby. They've obviously done it in football with um, City, Spurs, and now Arsenal. And the timing for, you know, two of those with the fallout of what happened at Spurs and Mourinho, with Mourinho coming in. And then also, you know, the turmoil at Arsenal at the start of the season. They've been able to capture that unique stuff. So I don't, I think that sort of content that lives really well on social in a shorter format, but is produced in more of a traditional way, is just being consumed still digitally is that kind of sweet spot for the older fans at the minute and in time then you know at the Mm. end of the day we know 
for sport, our audience is aging up and we've had it, you know, with you guys working at Social Chain, you're aware of some of the other brands that we have, such as student problems. You know, that audience that is on social is no longer students. So we need to think about creating content that is relevant for an older audience whilst, you know, still trying to, are they trying to target mm-hmm. students or young adults now, for example? And I think it's about, yeah, really for me as a brand, knowing who your audience are, who you want to target and, and really di- dialing in on that instead of trying to, okay, we just want to reach older fans because that's going to be really, really hard to do, inefficient and expensive. And it, it's about that balance, I guess. It's a really hard one though. And that's that's one question that I've really struggled with. I think amongst, just like on the brand side, you talk about like even sports audience aging up, but there are a lot of misconceptions, first of all, about TikTok's user base, that there are a lot broader age range than brands assume. And things like YouTube, that's a platform that's like basically touching traditional at this point. It's like over 10 years old, like its audience is aged up, like my dad uses it and he's in his mid 60s. So I think... I was just wondering, I guess, if so the brands you guys work with, like from like clubs and bookies and stuff, if there's an appetite to actually try and reach these younger fans or if they think we're going to do a social campaign and the goal of that is always going to be like what 34s and under because that's what we think is there. I, I think there's definitely an appetite. And on the TikTok point, I think it, it's really relevant because that's why TikTok became an official sponsor of Euro 2020. You know, they had kind of nailed it with bringing really a really young audience onto the platform but then you know they wanted to be the place where all fans of football were consuming their social content through the tournament and had some great advertising campaigns in traditional media obviously the branding and exposure they got around each game but then also creating this community of older football fans that wouldn't necessarily be on tiktok before but are now i mean i know before um I downloaded TikTok probably in January for the first time and I am hooked on it. I think it's the smartest algorithm out there. You can spend hours mm. on it. It is amazing. And more and more of my friends say the same now. Oh, I'm 29 years old. So in that kind of older, older age, I guess, um, older age range from, you know, the people we're talking about. So I think brands definitely do want to target that younger audience. And I think they see the value um, in that. But at the same time, having that misconception of TikTok's just full of teenagers, I think is really starting to shift. And I think we've seen that with other mm. platforms as well. When you actually go into the insights and, and can show your work, like, you know, our sweet spot is 18 to 34, pretty much cross-platform. But there are minor differences on, you know, Twitter compared to Instagram, for example. And that's really interesting. Yeah. And we talk about, you know, older fans, younger fans. One thing I think we can all agree on is sport absolutely has the ability just to bring everyone together, right? So I think one thing I loved about the Euros, apart from obviously the journey to the final, was that everything in the country, you know, Brexit, all the other stuff that was going on, just absolutely seems to be forgotten. You know, it was it was the Euros. It was just, everyone was just on the same journey, and I love that positivity, and that's what sport can bring. Now, the thing with that on social is naturally, you know, in sport when something happens, that's when traffic's at its highest. Everyone's talking about the same moment. You look at you know Ronaldo, for example, scoring a last minute winner. Social everyone's posting the same stuff. What I'd love to know, and I think for the listeners, it would be a great tip, is how do you stand out from the noise when everyone's talking about that moment? Is there certain things you can do to kind of differ your content and and stand out from the crowd? Yeah, it's really, really tricky. And I think obviously everyone wants to be there first and try and be first, but the reality of that is challenging and not always going to happen. I think it is about sticking true to your brand pillars, your brand identity and your tone of voice and who you are. So, for example, for sport, you know, we say we're the voice of the fans, but we want to fuel sports conversation. So how are we doing that? That is, you know, 
reacting to what has happened, Ronaldo scoring a last-minute winner. But we're not posting that for news because people are going to get their news still from Sky Sports News Twitter, BBC Sports Twitter, or BT Sport, mm-hmm. for example. But if we're fueling conversation, how do we do that? It's about the caption in terms of the question that we pose, you know, with Ronaldo. It's like, you know, should he should he have still been on the pitch at that time, for example? He hadn't had a great game. So could we pose the question to that? And then it's not just about posting a piece of content and letting it sit. It's getting in the comments, you know, a conversation's two ways with your audience. And that's something that's so important and we try and instill in sport is if we're fueling conversation, we're not just posting the content, but then people are replying in the comments. We need to be making sure that we're still kind of fueling that conversation throughout and building community. And I think that's where each brand has their own sort of brand pillars and identity. And as long as that's going through all of the content that you're putting out, it helps with that because then people come to sport for their take on what's happened. They might see the same photo from Getty that every publisher's used, but it's okay, well, how are they phrasing it differently? And, you know, I think the example that I always put is on our Instagram post, you look at the difference in numbers of comments from if we're posing a question to not is massively because suddenly then that fits with our identity mm. who we are what we're talking about people want to have a chat people use social as a way of talking now if they can't talk with their friends people have been lonely had to go online for the last year and a half in this pandemic so they're finding their communities and the opportunity to communicate on social so fueling conversation for us is what helps us do that and where we try to be a point of difference i am gonna fulfill my previous promise and bring you back to talking about that second screening behavior um, because it's an interesting concept especially for brands who are looking to create content and maybe as we've discussed they don't really want to split their audience into you know we'll speak to x audience on social then doing a completely different activation for uh, more traditional broadcast channels um but actually you said what you're seeing is more and more fans are turning to a second screen whilst they're watching a live sport so how i guess how has that evolved like do you know sort of the numbers of the amount of fans are doing that and as a follow-up to that what is the consideration then for sports brands um, when they're creating content around you know live sports moments? I think first and foremost, and what I always go back to is, you know, I'm a sports fan, so I think of what do I do on that because I know that a lot of my friends do that. And then, and you know, you can get an understanding, so you can just see the rise in it as well. I think where people are always going to watch sport live. You know, some people might try and record the game. Oh, don't tell me, but if you're not watching it live, it doesn't have the same impact. And I think yeah. now more than ever. You know, people then want to be talking to their friends whilst the game is going on. You know, I'm sure both of you around the Euros when England were one nil up in the final, everyone's WhatsApps were going absolutely mental all over the country because you were talking. I'd have loved to have seen Eve's WhatsApps. Stop. <laughs> I think the only like football related one I had was the Champions League final and it was you watching City. It was you who messaged me. <laughs> yeah, not yeah. a lot going on in my group chats, I'm afraid, but I, yeah. I enjoy the atmosphere like on Twitter and things like that. Yeah, but at the same time, I think there's so many natural breaks in games, whether it's half-time, ad breaks in the build-up, whatever that might be. I know for a fact that I'm on my phone during that time now. So firstly, I question what's the value of advertisers spending massive massive money on advertising during these big sporting events when the reality is the, the amount of people that are on their phone during this time are not engaging with what's on the TV. What they're doing is they're going to Instagram stories to see who's at the game, what's happening behind the scenes, who's there. And something that we've been able to do really, really nicely, thanks to you know some of the partners that we work with and the access that we get, is a really easy, simple format called Access All Areas on Instagram Stories, where you know we can literally tell the story at a match or event or whatever it might be without showing the match itself for, for obvious broadcast reasons. But there's so much that happens at an event that people want to see. Any famous people there? What's going on in the crowd? You know what food options are there even, you know, what, what What else is going on? And those quick reactive pieces of content, whether it's, for example, Gary Neville was at the Papa John's Trophy final when we were there. 
because Salford were playing, we grabbed a quick interview with him and it's, oh, so-and-so's there. And, you know, we can plan all we want for this content, knowing that we're going to be there. We want to hit this, this and this. But those reactive bits are what's so interesting. And, you know, when the Carabao Cup final was on, um, fans haven't been able to be at sport either at the minute that much. So they will see the people that are there behind the scenes, what's going on in the dressing room. And Sporf has been able to create a format that allows us to do that with with our partners, which has been really, really interesting. And yeah, I think even as well, that second screen, even if you're at a match and you're watching it yourself, there's so much other sports going on at the same time that you're checking the football scores. If you've got a bet on, you might see how that's doing. You're seeing what else is happening. You yeah. might have an Instagram because your friend might be there in another part of the ground and you might be seeing what they're up to and you know, communicating with them over Instagram if you've got signal. It feels more natural than watching the ads, doesn't it? But I don't know if the three of us have a bit of bias going on, all sort of being like I'm late sure. 20s region. But it genuinely astounds me now how expensive like TV ad spots are still for these major sporting games yeah. because you're right in the ad break who are these people watching the adverts seriously yeah. the first thing I do in the ads on like if you're not checking your phone you're going to get a drink or make a cup of tea or something right yeah exactly that and I think yeah the, the amount of people and um, that are on their phones during those times now that's where the value is for brands I think and that's where the value is for us as a publisher is creating that content around the event allows us to, to fuel that conversation and be a part of that conversation in a really congested space. Yeah, I think I didn't want to bring this up when it came into my mind. We're going to have to. I saw an image go viral the other day of, I can't remember what ground they were at, was a fan. The, the, the pitch was from over their shoulder. They were at a game and they had another game on their phone that they were watching. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, whether that's like, that is second screen on steroids, right? That is consumption yeah. overload how have we reached that moment where everything's so accessible and we're information overload we want to know everything right now that someone's paid probably 40 50 pounds to get into an event and actually spends half the game on the phone watching another game now obviously we don't know the circumstances of said fan if you're out there i just find it you know fascinating how how we are we want everything now even if you've paid to be somewhere you still want something else and what these fans are doing, like I think every fan that goes to, and it's not just a sporting event, a music event, but because of, you know, the rise of social and what's happened, everyone is a content creator. And, you know, the, the actual yeah. brand equity and what people are doing by just, you know, saying that, you know, because everyone wants to show, oh, I'm at the World Cup final, I'm at the Euros, look, look at what a great time I'm having. But actually... The value in that to brands, if they're they're a part of that tournament or, you know, or they're, they're visible in that content is sometimes not measurable, obviously, but still of massive value because that's going mm -hmm. to an audience they're not even paying for. And, and that's what's really interesting as well. So everyone is a content creator. So with that in mind, would you agree that sports content and coverage has pivoted from news to entertainment with obviously the content creators in mind? And I'd like to know what your thoughts on on the impact of traditional broadcasters with that. I actually think a good example is probably Sky Sports News again, bringing in Mark Wright um, as one of their presenters on, on the main channel in the, during the main kind of daytime hours. Obviously, traditionally a, an entertainment host, but then coming into traditional broadcasting, is that a little bit of a hint on the impact it's having? Yeah, I think massively. And again, it's they're targeting people with an already big audience and fan base themselves to, to try and boost their numbers, I guess. And I think that's where... You a know, little bit like the Harry Panero example before, right? It's exactly that. You know, it, it's using, it's leveraging social influences and their following or, or, you know, celebrities and their following to bring them to those shows. And if you're a fan of Mark Wright, you might end up watching what he's doing. And, and and even, I think, as well, there's the other side of it is the the old school people that are cynical, they will still watch because they might want to see him fail. 
and they'll yeah. bring back Jim well, White. Do you know what I mean? There's also that cynicism where people still watch him because they want to see see what happens and if it's any good or not. Obviously, that's them reacting with talent. They're bringing in talent from entertainment or social and putting them on traditional broadcasting. But do we think that the formats are, will, are due a shake-up as well? Like we, we touched on before, do you like soccer sat? It's very static. It's always been the way. It's traditional. Is the true Geordie style a little bit more kind of laid back, relaxed, kind of having a drink, maybe not on TV? But, you know, are they will they be forced to change up the formats as well as the people, do you think? I think definitely there's an element of that, especially as nowadays being able to watch the games yourself is so much more readily available okay, outside of the 3 p.m. kickoffs. Um, I think there's definitely room to to make the formats a bit more punchy. I think no one needs a three-hour build-up to 3 o'clock kickoffs no, anymore. You know, we don't have that attention span. But there's a space, and I think back to your point as well on on news and sports content around news, I think as well, the shift to social, there's still that element of news, certainly on Twitter, and you look at the rise of Fabrizio Romano. Mm-hmm. He's now the go-to guy for your transfer gossip. Even I know his room. name like quite familiar, yeah. like quite well. Um, what's going on there? That's, that's something. It's a perfect example. <laughs> and something as similar as here, as simple as here we go. You know that that's yeah. going to announce a big transfer deal. It's so iconic and synonymous in the last year, year and a half, whereas before you'd be tuning into Sky Sports News on Transfer Deadline Day with Jim White. Now yeah. you've got Fabrizio on Twitch with his partnership on that, live streaming, talking about, you know, on a weekly show, what's going on. And it's still a similar format. It's still talking and hypothesizing who's talked to who, who said what. But at the same time, it's now just living on social as well. Well, I can think of one factor that's probably definitely, probably definitely uh, influenced this shift from news to entertainment because I think sport was already going that way especially on social but then of course a little thing called the pandemic hits and there's no news there's nothing to report so I guess you guys probably had to pivot I mean for you guys who you know you always have your finger on the pulse with these matches and goals that are coming out all the time when that stops how did you guys um, pivot and how were you able to keep up that momentum with your content? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, but I think in some ways it actually became easier to access athletes because suddenly they had all this time. They were locked down as well. They didn't have special permission, certainly at the start of the pandemic. They were locked down as well. So suddenly, you know, you saw Jamie Redknapp going live on Instagram with Rory McIlroy mm-hmm. and having a conversation. God, there was so, we so many Instagram lives, wasn't yeah. there? Last getting year. pelted with notifications yeah. every Five day. A week. <laughs> it was crazy. But, you know, you look at what we were able to do and create um, a series called At Home With Sport. And we were able to chat to some big names like Ian Wright, Gabby Lahore, Cheebs, Jake Humphrey. Three contacts that we had, PR contacts, but these guys were looking for things. They were bored as well. So we're happy to give up their time. And it's also a lot easier production-wise to shoot a Zoom call and record it than yeah. obviously two cameras, cameramen, sound ops. Suddenly it becomes really expensive and we have to assess the opportunities case by case as to what we're going to do so being able to do something on zoom was actually a lot easier as long as we could still make it entertaining and still you know are you going to be keeping that now sort of going forward even like things are opening back up again obviously they're back playing are you going to try and keep some content creation processes happening remotely i think there's still been an element of that for sure because you know it's easier it's safer it's quicker, you know, you can set up a Zoom call and have a 10-minute pre-production call before going and doing that shoot. Yeah. And at the same time, the audi- I think the audience and social is a lot more accepting now of this video content that doesn't have to be um, beautifully shot in HD or 4K. Of course, we all love that and it's stunning and that is a very much a part of what we want to do going back out and, you know, creating these entertaining formats. But there's definitely an element of being able to speak to people over Zoom still where there's time because 
it just gives us that better access sometimes. And sometimes, again, the talent are more at ease and more likely to give you a better answer. We don't obviously just want to be a channel where it's just talking heads, people talking to camera. Okay, you see a bit of their home. But we will adapt and create content that fits to that and how we can paint that with you know other footage or whatever we're able to do creatively to you know not just have talking heads on a screen, of course, but 100% it'll be a part of the plans. And I think it'll be a part of most um, publishers' plans moving forward for a little while. Even now still, you know, in traditional media, you've got people dialing in on video calls and you know mm-hmm. um uh for to give their, their opinions and punditry so it's definitely here to stay to an extent yeah no i definitely agree i mean just look at what we're doing we're well cal and i are in the studio but obviously we've got you over not zoom but a zoom like thing um so i can definitely see some of those trends continuing but i mean this has been very interesting and i think a lot of brands will take away um how appetites are changing among sports fans and i'm going to say it again but not forgetting the older ones as well i don't know why i've started empathizing with them so much i'm like don't forget about them Um, but thank you so much greg for talking to us today no thank you it's been awesome really appreciate it Well, there we have it. An absolutely amazing chat with Greg, who's who's so knowledgeable in the area. He always he always leaves me with something new that I, I don't know or I've not thought of myself. I think the main takeout from me, and I've always thought this all along, and Greg's kind of reaffirmed that, is entertainment is the key. Mm. Sports is entertainment. So your content has to match that. I think especially your branded content, you know, where so many brands are pigeonholing their messaging into clubs and players who want that probably don't want to be there and it just doesn't align it just doesn't work you need to have fun you need to be the facilitator and trust me and more importantly trust greg your audience will love you for yeah it. no i couldn't agree more and i guess if you've learned something there that really says a lot i mean every time we talk sport it's a learning day for me um but a few things really stood out to me there a few sort of trends that um seem to be uh, well, certainly new since the last time we talked to Sporf. So all these fans now second screening when they're watching live content, obviously the importance of TikTok now. Um, and yeah, the way he was able to get quite specific with those examples, like look at how it worked with the Olympics and the Euro sp- sponsorship. You know, it, it's about more than just putting yourself in this uh, conversation, like on this platform, because you're right, there is so much content out there, but really being strategic about how you use that. And then of course, this shift where people want to see content directly from the athletes themselves um, and not just brands. So there's a few certainly actionable points that sports brands can take away there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the access to athletes now and, and every day that we go forward is more and more. You, you Every day you are closer to the athletes and it feels like um, they're aware of that. Brands are aware of that. And actually, tra- I think traditional media are aware of that as well. Going back to what yeah. Greg said around, um, you know, that Saturday uh, social talking about um, your sports hosts actually hosting main primetime TV now. It feels like they've wisened up and realised actually sports on social is in my eyes, especially, um, further ahead than traditional media. Um, and it's interesting to see they're actually getting to grips with that now and trying to make amends It's an interesting that. relationship, isn't it? And I think one that you see more in sports than any other industry, this real merge between TV and uh, social. But I don't know how, what you think about this, but I think social is doing it better than telly. Like I think TV formats succeed better or look more natural when they're put on things like YouTube and adapted to social first video than, for example, bringing in social talent to TV yeah. because you've got that audience there, like we said, who thinks, who the hell are these people? Yeah, and it's and it's not just that. I mean, sport's so reactive and there's no 
better place to be than social when something's so reactive. You can be there in the moment. You can see things other people haven't seen. You can see people recording from the, the stands, the turnstiles, wherever they are. You can see all this. And traditionally, that would take, you know, you can see a lag usually if a, a transfer is announced. You probably see like a 10, 15 minute lag from social to mm. TV. So in theory, they're going to have to do a lot of work to get to the levels of where social is and where sport has been uh, taken on social. No, definitely. But I think if there's one thing we can take from today's episode, it's that it isn't uh, or maybe shouldn't be just one or the other for a lot of these brands. It's looking at these complementary uh, content strategies you can look at and really think about the way that people are second screening. You know, you taking advantage of uh, putting out content specifically in the ad breaks of major games or are you creating content that's designed to complement the big shows that you know they're already watching like Match of the Day and things like that. Um, so yeah, lots to think about. More importantly, just have fun with it.